0: He's easy to spot. The same goes for the devout Muslim. He's praying five times a day. He's ritually washing his hands and feet. He's giving alms. He's fasting. He's even going on pilgrimage to Mecca. The devout Buddhist might be the easiest to spot. Just look for the skinniest monk. Buddhism teaches severe self-denial as a means of attaining nirvana. And Buddha himself was said to live for a period on one grain of rice per day while he was fasting and today some monastics follow the same practice so you can tell how serious they are by how skinny they are christianity is different though it's being the only world religion that does not teach salvation by works there's nothing we can do to earn perfect righteousness before god all are, are lost and condemned but perfect righteousness can be found it's something you can receive as a gift from god by his grace. Salvation is granted by grace and it's received through faith alone. That faith in Christ the savior can save you. And so the measure of the true Christian then is faith. And likewise Christian maturity is measured by faith. But the thing about faith though is that it's invisible. It resides in the heart, you can't see it. And so just walking down the street you couldn't necessarily tell who has true faith and who doesn't? Even coming to church, looking around, you don't necessarily know who here has true faith, who doesn't. So how do you know then? How do you identify true faith? How do you know if you yourself even have true faith? Well, the answer in large part is by word and deed, by how you live. Don't get the impression that just because we're saved by grace through faith apart from works, that our works don't matter, and that how we live is irrelevant. It's true that righteous living does not contribute to our salvation in any way, but righteous living should be the consequence of our salvation. So that, therefore, you should be able to spot the serious or devout Christian by his, his deeds, his actions, his speech, his words which bear reflection of the faith in his heart. And we read this morning, the Sermon on the Mount, the end of it, and Christ himself made this distinction clear right before that. He he told us how to identify false teachers, false believers. Outwardly, they're going to look like sheep. But he said, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. So how do you tell them apart? Well, he said, you'll know them by their fruits. Good trees are, are going to bear good fruit. And bad trees they're going to bear bad fruit. And what comes out of their lives in word and deed tells you what's in their heart, whether true saving faith resides there or not. Is there, is there any evidence? Now, we all are imperfect and fall short, but is there any evidence of newness in the heart? Living righteously doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're made a disciple by faith in him alone, but, but consequently living righteously, being being a doer of the word is is one of the main things that reveals you to be a disciple. You know, as the half-brother of Jesus, James, who made this distinction crystal clear, you know, James 1.22, he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And salvation comes by hearing and then by believing, yes, but if that, if that faith is genuine, it will transform you on the inside and then turn you into a doer. But if you're someone who just hears only and, and you never do, it just shows you're deluded. Your, your faith is not genuine. Your actions matter. Your speech matters. James says in James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. That's what James says. You know, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so if all that comes out of your mouth is evil or wicked or deceitful speech, what's that saying about what's in your heart and your supposed faith? So in word and deed, in speech and action, we're expected to just give evidence of true faith. Like James says in James 2.14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And he's not questioning, can faith save? James knows faith can save. That's the only thing that can save is faith. But his question is, can that faith save him? The, the type of faith that yields no works. And the answer is no, because that's not true faith. That's not genuine faith. It's a phony faith. And all this point is made nowhere clearer than Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Then it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You know, we're saved by grace apart from works, but note we are saved for good works, the true disciple will be known by faith, but that faith will show itself in word and deed. And so I trust and I hope you get the point. This this faith works distinction absolutely cannot be lost on you as a Christian. Now I'm laboring this point for two reasons. For one, it's just always important for us to be refreshed on on the distinction between true saving faith and works in the Christian life. And we need to remember that biblical Christianity is distinct from every other worldview, in it's teaching between faith and works. But I also bring the subject up because it ties right into the, the basic thrust of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, as well as the text we'll be looking at today. That's Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6. One big reason Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church is to ward off false teaching. But he really takes a more positive approach. He's just trying to build them up in the faith. And that way, they won't fall prey when counterfeits come. So remember how he prayed for them back in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And he prays that they would just keep growing in the knowledge of the Lord. That's going to lead them to to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, which in turn uh, makes them bear fruit in every good work. These Colossians were, were like little saplings. They were relatively young believers and Paul just wants to see them send down deeper roots, grow a thicker trunk, produce stronger branches. Then they will start yielding more mature fruit, and they'll be strong enough to withstand any storm. And Paul reiterates this in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, which is another defining passage. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted. And now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Hopefully you see the distinction again. They, they already have received Jesus as Lord by faith. They don't need to work their way to Jesus. But they have him. But now they must walk in him. The faith that was worked in them needs to be worked out, needs to show itself in, in how they live. And that's one of Paul's main concerns in writing this letter to the Colossians, that they would just grow up and bear fruit. Healthy tree is the strongest tree. just wants them to grow up. And this train of thought runs through chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, if or really since you have been raised up with Christ, You've been spiritually resurrected by faith. And just seek the things above. Live according to your new life. And in the rest of chapter 3, Paul fleshes out what that should look like in word and in deed. Both speech and action. For example, verse 8, he told them in chapter 3. But now put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. But instead, verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You have been chosen of God and he chose you to be holy and to so now live out that holiness by faith. Now, hopefully throughout all of our time in Colossians, these lessons have, have sunk in. And I too would pray like Paul that you just grow more consistent and established and fruitful in your Christian walk. Well, now we're getting into chapter four, and Paul is wrapping things up in this pretty short letter. In the verses that follow our passage today, that, that's verse seven, through the end of the chapter, you just get a long list of farewell greetings, and what we'll cover that next time. But before that, Paul is concluding the body of his letter. Back in verses 2 through 4, he first asks them to pray for him, to pray that he would bear fruit in word and in deed. The only thing is Paul has a clear emphasis in his prayer request. It's an evangelism. He's praying that, that they would pray for him to bear fruit evangelistically in word and deed. He seeks prayer to find open doors to share the good news of Christ clearly and boldly. He has the fruit of evangelism chiefly in mind. You may say that evangelism is one of the greatest fruits of the Christian walk. I mean, after all, it's the church's main mission. We're left behind so that we might go into all the nations and make disciples. Evangelism is where word and deed come together. It's a chief way we're pleasing to the Lord because it's such a powerful expression of genuine faith. Evangelism requires faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. That's why evangelism is so pleasing to the Lord. It's just one of those things that if you have little faith or weak faith or immature faith, you're probably not going to do. And it's definitely something the phony Christian will not do. Evangelism or or should I say biblical evangelism? I and mean, it requires, first of all, that you actually believe all this stuff, Like you actually believe that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is God's son. You believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. You actually believe all that. And then it requires you, you kind of know it too. You know your stuff. You know the scriptures. You know enough to, to share the gospel message with clarity and also Conviction. And then evangelism requires you actually care enough about people you likely don't even know to tell them all this. And on one hand, that doesn't sound too hard. I mean, this is such good news. People's sins can be wiped clean, they can be forever reconciled to their God and Creator just for free through Christ. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear that message? Well, you know, sadly, it turns out a lot of people. You know, there can be a cost to evangelism of scorn or mockery or ridicule, rejection, even persecution. It might cost you some relationships. But again, this is why overall evangelism is high-hanging fruit. It's a genuine expression of faith, and that's why it's so pleasing to the Lord. It just takes great faith to produce. And the fruit of evangelism in word and in deed most certainly characterize the apostle Paul. He was all in. But see now as he concludes the body of this letter, he kind of flips it around and he wants it to likewise characterize them. He wants to see them too honor the Lord in word and in deed, and especially through evangelism. So we have today it's just a pair of short verses, 5 and 6, they conclude the body of this letter. They're not complicated but they provide worthwhile admonitions because we too need to be conducting ourselves rightly in word and deed as a consequence of our faith. And especially when it comes to how we live in the world, how we conduct ourselves among outsiders. So we're just going to cover these final two direct instructions in Colossians on how to bear fruit, how to bear fruit. First, how to bear fruit in deed or inaction, how to bear fruit in deed. Now look at verse 5. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. The first thing to observe here is the object. The subject is the same. It's believers. He's still talking to the church now. He's talking to believers, giving them a, really a f- couple of final instructions before he finishes the letter but there's a special object to take into consideration, namely outsiders. He doesn't just want them to live wisely, but to live wisely toward outsiders. How they live in the world is is clearly in view here. Outsiders literally refers to those who are without, as opposed to those who are within or or on the inside. It's talking about people outside the church, non-Christians, non-believers. It's like Jesus said in Mark 4, 11. He's talking to his disciples, and he says, to you, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. He meant that literally outside the house, but also figuratively outside the kingdom, that there's a distinction inside, outside. There's a sharp line in the sand that divides those who truly confess Jesus christ as their lord and savior and those who don't and the church is merely the body of people who have made such a profession and they they enter his kingdom his domain they're on the inside and, and everyone else is on the outside now most of colossians has been dealing with inside issues insider issues how to live with other christians how to relate to one another in the church, even how to deal with false teachers who claim to be on the inside. In most of Colossians, he's been dealing with our interaction on the inside. But how we relate to and interact with the world still matters. It's not like we're just to hide in these four walls and and ignore or flee from the world outside. No, how we relate to the outsider matters very much. In fact, just real quick, turn to John 17. John 17, just for a second. I mean, and Remember, the world is the mission field. That's why we're here, to reach the lost out of love. And Jesus himself made this clear in, in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays for his disciples. And in so doing, he makes their mission crystal clear. John 17, starting in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus knew he'd be leaving his disciples behind in a hostile environment and that the world would hate them just as they hated him. Why? Well, because they are no longer of the world. They're not a part of the world system anymore, which is oriented away from God. They don't share the world's values anymore, which exist in rebellion to God. So now these disciples of Christ, they stand for God, with Christ, in the light. The world's in the darkness. The darkness hates the light because it exposes its evil deeds. And, well, we're going to get the same treatment as the Lord. Nevertheless, even though Jesus knew the road for his disciples would be hard, His prayer for them is not that they would just flee the world or escape hardship. Rather, he goes on to pray, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He doesn't pray that his disciples, that that includes you and me, that they would escape the world or just have nice, easy, safe, suburban, middle-class lives. The mission is the world. We can't just leave the world. But he does pray for their protection, that we would not fall prey to the evil one and suffer spiritual harm. He goes on in verse 16. He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, but sanctify them in the truth. And your word is truth. As a highlight of this prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples to be sanctified. And that means just set apart. They would be different, distinct from the world. They're not of the world. Well, let's make sure they're sanctified. They're clearly distinct from the world, that they belong to Christ now, and it should show. They bear his name. They bear the image of the second Adam now, not the first Adam. And to show this, they need to be set apart from this evil, adulterous generation, and to enable us to live this out, to show us what this looks like, Jesus gave us what? His word, God's word. Sanctify them in the truth. And God's word is that truth. Like he said back in verse 14, I've given them your word. That's what he gave to you. That was his parting gift. I've given them your word. And Jesus knew that a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he knew that's what we would need to be sustained in hostile territory, as we live in and among the world. And speaking of verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now, we were left behind primarily for this purpose, to reach the world, to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations, or to preach the same word of God, to see others receive the same transformation, to likewise be transferred from, like we learn in Colossians 1, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so this this must be on our mind always, our mission, how we live among outsiders in the world, but not of the world, as I'm sure you've heard it said. Keep that in the front of your mind as you go to work, as you live your life. We have a mission here. All right, now go back to Colossians 4. As the church... We're not called to shun outsiders, to avoid them, to forget them. We're not even called to judge them, per se. 1 Corinthians 5.12. And Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? I mean, God will deal with the world. He'll render justice in his perfect timing. We leave that to him. Our mission as the church is not not to judge the world. God will take care of all things. Our mission is to witness and to spread the good news to all. And to do that, we just have to live in and among outsiders. All right, so all this being the case, Paul's big concern here is that these Colossian Christians would then conduct themselves rightly. You see that verse 5? He doesn't say avoid outsiders. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. That's the main message. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Literally, he just says, walk in wisdom. We're to make God's wisdom the compass by which we navigate living in this world. You know, if you recall, wisdom has been a big theme in Colossians. And back in chapter 1, verse 9, he prayed that that God would fill them with with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. And back in Colossians 1.28, Paul mentioned how he uh, proclaims Christ, and he aims to instruct every person in wisdom that he might present every person complete in Christ. What is this wisdom he's talking about? It's really just Christ and, and the mystery of his gospel. Don't forget, chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in chapter 3, verse 16, as as we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, it's going to lead us to be speaking to and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So we find this, this wisdom pops up all over Colossians. Wisdom is the spiritual insight that connects our, our right knowing to our right doing. You really don't have a chance of living in a manner that that pleases God and blesses you apart from this divine wisdom. Now, we can say a lot of, of what it means to walk wisely in general. You can read the whole book of Proverbs to learn more on that. But I believe there's a clear evangelistic emphasis in this admonition because, because of what Paul says at the end of the verse. Look again at verse, verse 5. You know, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most... Of every opportunity. It's an interesting phrase, ekagzerado or is the word in the Greek, and it's the same verb for redeeming or, or buying something up. The object here is time, but but not time itself. Really, the idea is opportunity. So it's, it's like he's saying, you know, redeem the time or, or snap up every opportunity. For me, this is why. Just as a quick example, why I buy all my candy, the day after Halloween. It's just called taking advantage of the opportunity. It's an opportune time, and you got to capitalize on it. It's all on fire sale, and you can't wait too long because after a couple days, it's all gone. It's a short window. It's an opportune time. And given the context, though, Paul's not talking about a, a commerce opportunity, but an evangelism opportunity that you've got to take. But back in verses 2, 3, and 4, he just finished... Speaking about this, he's asking for prayer that that God would open up for him a door for the word. That's just an idiom for an opportunity. He desired prayer that God would give them many opportunities. To do what? Just to speak forth Christ. And Paul knows, though, it's not just for him. The Colossian church, they're going to run into many of their own opportunities. Just by living in the world, they're going to find just many open doors, And when the time comes, what he's saying here is he wants them to be ready, to take them, to redeem them, to buy up all those opportunities and not let them slip away. This is a call to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel and witness Christ. That work is not just for the Apostle Paul. It's not just for pastors. It's a standing order for all disciples. So, like I said, this admonition to conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, it's not just a general plea. This has witnessing in view. And so now we can finally ask, what does it actually mean? You know, what what does it mean to walk wisely toward outsiders with with witnessing in mind? What What does that look like then? Well, let me suggest that, for one, this involves being shrewd, Prudent and discerning. We're talking the wisdom that lets you say the right thing at the right time in the right manner, no matter the circumstance. This is the person who knows how to read his or her audience. And then, you know, without sacrificing honesty or being insincere, this is the person who can adapt to the situation or circumstances or person he or she is talking to just just to deliver the gospel more effectively I And mean, isn't this what the apostle Paul did the gospel message itself doesn't change but the manner in which we deliver it can change the gospel is the meal it doesn't change but how we offer it the plate on which we present it can be adapted and this is what Paul said in first Corinthians nine twenty. 20 he says to the Jews I became a Jew so that I might Win Jews, to those under the law, as those under the law. To those without the law, as without the law. It says in verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What he's saying here is, obviously without crossing the line into sin or violating one's conscience, But he could adapt himself to others just to present the truth more effectively. And that is just wisdom. For example, if you're witnessing to a Catholic or someone with a Catholic background, this is the wisdom that tells you it's it's no use just to carelessly bash their traditions. Unless they know better, it's not going to get you anywhere. They're just going to put up their walls of defense. This is the wisdom that teaches you to sidestep secondary issues get to the heart of the gospel. The gospel itself might offend them. We can't help that. But let it not be your brash approach. Or another example, I've known some people, even at this church, who have very little concern over COVID personally. They're not so so worried about the disease, but but they've still limited themselves and even quarantined themselves just for the sake of their witness before their unbelieving family members. And look, wise actions like this: keep open doors for the gospel open. You don't want to needlessly close doors by your, your foolish actions. And so first, just seek the wisdom that enables you to discern how to approach and reach whoever you're talking to. But you know there's a second key dimension to this wisdom, this wisdom and how we live before the outsider. A second dimension to this wisdom. It also involves being holy or moral or upright. Don't forget that biblical wisdom is not merely intellectual, right? To the world, the wise man is just the smartest man. The wise man is the one who possesses the most knowledge. That's how the world thinks of wisdom. But biblically, you could be the smartest person on the planet. But if you live wickedly, the Bible says you're still a fool, the true wise person is the one who's filled with the knowledge of God, but then also obeys it and lives it out. This is a thrust of what Paul said in the parallel, Ephesians 5. He says, Ephesians 5.15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. He says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The instruction is very similar, but in the context of Ephesians 5, it's very clear he's talking morally. He says, verse 7, don't be partakers with outsiders. You formerly were darkness, now you're light, walk in the light. He tells them, don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness. So we find then that this walking wisely before outsiders involves living above reproach. You're just free from the stain of evil or hypocrisy. There's always going to be people who reject the gospel. I just don't want my character to be the main reason they reject the gospel. I don't want to give the outsider a convenient excuse not to believe because of how I live. And you likewise should have just nothing to do with behavior that discredits or brings shame to the gospel. I mean, how can you lead people into the light of Christ if you're walking in the darkness? Who would believe you? Who would want to follow you? You kind of lose all of your credibility. You're giving them, at least in their mind, a good reason not to believe, and far be it from us to do that. Instead, like 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And Peter, likewise, has witnessing in mind when he writes that. Even as you're slandered, as an evildoer, just for God's righteousness, just keep going, stay above reproach, keep walking the walk, let your light shine. That is wise living. And in God's providence, he will use that witness to save some to convict some to repent and believe, leading them to glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the wise conduct God expects from our lives. He will use all of it for our good, but even some to to lead to the salvation of others. Again, just think, do you want your actions to be the reason someone gives for why they refuse to believe? Or do you want your actions to be the reason someone gives for why they, they can't help but believe? So walk wisely toward outsiders. That's how you can bear fruit in deed. Now we need to keep going and finish up here. Verse 6, we find a second how to, as we live in the world, how to bear fruit in word. His final words, instructions to the Colossians. He's covering word and deed. Verse 5, how you can bear fruit in deed, in your actions. But now verse 6, how you can bear fruit in your word, in your speech. And let's look at verse 6. He says there, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now he's focusing on their words. This still has an evangelistic undertone. Your speech in general matters, and how you control your tongue matters. Whether you're witnessing or not, you should have righteous speech. Just read James 3 for that. But still in the context here is speech before the outsider. So we're still talking about the outsider. Paul wants them to openly engage outsiders in witnessing. And as they do so, two characteristics should govern their speech. And let's look at these. These apply to us as well. From verse six. First, your speech should be gracious toward the outsider. Your speech should be gracious. Verse 6, he says, let your speech always be with grace. This reference to grace could be God's grace, could be human graciousness. I'm pretty clear humans are in view here. But it's safe to say that that the type of gracious speech we're talking about is that which comes from God's grace at work in the heart. Like James says in James 3, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity and evil, Sinful, hurtful speech comes very naturally for uh, from us and and for us because well, we have fallen hearts. Sin resides in the heart, but in salvation, you receive a new heart. You receive the transforming grace of God, and we still have the flesh, but the new heart you receive should enable you to speak true words of grace, and these are words that that give grace to those who hear that that build up instead of tear down. Brings to mind another parallel, Ephesians 4.29, a verse I hope you all get to know. Ephesians 4.29, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's our standard. Negatively, such speech will not be vindictive, angry, abusive, slanderous. And again, in an evangelistic setting, it can sometimes be challenging. You might find someone who's angered or even offended by the gospel. And so they might in turn slander you or slander the Lord. And that might trigger you to respond in like kind, to fight fire with fire, slander them back. But we're called to a higher way, the way of the Lord, like First Peter two twenty four says, of Christ while while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Is so it somewhere we're not going to join them? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but instead give positive words that that give grace to those who hear. You know, back in Colossians three three twelve, we're told to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And patience. And so, as these Christ like virtues fill your heart, well, let let that type of speech come from your mouth. The Lord will use such gracious speech and witnessing. This is not to suggest that you should censor yourself to keep from saying anything offensive because you're trying to be kind. And we know the gospel message has hard truths and even some bad news built into it before the good news. and that's inherently offensive, but we can't help that. People need to hear the whole counsel of God's word to be saved. And you're not called to be gracious to the point of veiling the gospel, but rather, like Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, just speak the truth in love. That's what we're talking about here. Just speak the truth in love. You give words of grace, showing a genuine love for them. Give words of humility, assuring them that we are no better we are too merely sinners saved by grace and give words of hope showing them that Christ is likewise their only hope for newness and salvation so first as you as you speak before others and outsiders find and just put on display the power of gracious speech so first your speech should be gracious secondly here a second characteristic that should govern your speech before the outsider Your speech should be salty. Your speech should be salty. I will have to explain that. But he says, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So he says it. Now, I know, in our culture, salty speech refers to colorful language, profane speech. It's the speech of sailors. Even more recently, someone being salty means they're just bitter and angry over something. But believe it or not, 2,000 years ago, it meant something entirely different. In the Greek world, salty speech was a common metaphor for lively speech. Speech that is engaging, interesting, and flavorful. So that's what this means here. Salt was a precious commodity in the ancient world for two reasons. One was its preservative power. That's what Jesus was getting at when he says the church is to be the salt of the earth. We are to preserve righteousness on the earth. But the second reason salt was so valuable was it just adds flavor to things that are just bland and tasteless. Salt adds flavor. And that's clearly what Paul is talking about here as he mentions the word seasoned with salt. He's talking about the flavor aspect of of salt. If you ever had canned soup from the market, it's loaded with sodium for taste. And if you ever get like the healthy version, the low sodium you find it's also pretty low on taste, and you'll probably just add your own salt. But this metaphor for speech that is seasoned with salt, so it's meant to communicate speech that is not boring, not bland, but interesting and appealing. It was used of speech that was witty, clever, even humorous. This speech that is not to be ignored or tuned out. And listen, this is part of wisdom when you're witnessing the gospel. The gospel is not boring. The gospel message is is rich, it's enthralling, it's powerful. The only problem is some people are boring. Or maybe not just boring, that when they communicate the gospel, they just have zero passion. They communicate zero interest in what they're saying. But who's going to be moved by that? I mean, I think we all had that high school teacher that was just so utterly boring that we just tuned him or her out. I mean, they're up there communicating that that they have zero interest in the things they're teaching. So like, why should we have any interest in the things you're teaching? We're just not going to listen. But you can see how devastating that would be in evangelism. You need to be engaging. One way to do this is with word pictures or illustrations. It's where you're just relating God's truth to common life. If you don't like the sound of this, well, you probably don't like the teaching of Jesus because he was a master of this type of salty speech. Jesus was extremely engaging. How did he teach and communicate rich theological truth? It was not often through jargon, most often through illustration. Just read the teaching of Jesus. What's he talking about? Mostly talking about things like salt and fire, sheep, shepherds, wolves, trees, flowers, mountains, bushes, towers, boats, fish, fishermen. Like the list goes on. He's just taking common life and relating it to spiritual truth. There's a reason why his teaching captivates people the world over and and still does. It was seasoned with salt. That's what it means. And we should aim for the same. And to be clear, we're not advocating a type of clever speech that's void of gospel truth. That's what Paul warned against in 1 Corinthians 2, where he told them that I did not come to you in cleverness of speech, but I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There are some preachers today, and especially the ones you see on social media, that they've taken this type of clever speech a bit too far. And they've left the gospel out. I mean, they're trying so hard to be clever and engaging. Watch out. And they're trying so hard to be entertaining and keep people's attention, but they feel the only way they can do that is by leaving out doctrine and hard truth and the gospel itself. I mean, some of these prosperity preachers or megachurch preachers, they are extremely engaging public speakers. They're easy to listen to. Sometimes you might say even fun to listen to. They're, they're wordsmiths. They know how to speak. But it's all in vain if you vacate the gospel. Instead, use this skill of engaging speech to show instead the greater glory of the gospel and to speak the full counsel of God's word. One way you can improve in this is to be prepared. Just think in advance. How could you communicate Necessary spiritual truths to people who don't know the Bible, have no Christian background. How would you illustrate a concept like propitiation or justification or the substitutionary atonement? Those are all part of the gospel message. How would you tell someone? You yourself meditate on the truth, digest it, think on it, and then prepare to serve it to others in a way that they're just not going to choke on it. In fact, this gracious, salty speech is what enables you to, like Paul says at the end of verse 6, how to know how to respond to each person. There is no cookie-cutter approach to evangelism. If, you, if all you do is memorize an outline that's just like a one-size-fits-all approach, you're going to find you don't get very far with a lot of people because they don't fit that one size. People don't come in one size. We're dealing with individuals with unique backgrounds, experiences presuppositions, biases. They're going to come at you with different challenges and questions and objections. Everyone is different, so you simply need to be ready to respond, he says, to each person. Because what you need, then, is not a cookie-cutter approach. You need God's wisdom working in and through your knowledge of the Word, delivered in an engaging way that meets each person where he or she is at. I know this is a high standard, but this is what the Lord expects from all of his disciples. It's not just for pastors. He calls all of his disciples witnesses. We're here to serve him, to witness his gospel in word and in deed. Indeed, we're to let all of our speech and actions be brought under the lordship of Christ. Like Paul said back in Colossians 3.17, he says, whatever you do in word and deed. Do all through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let yourself think through this as applied to evangelism this morning. This really is, is a chief fruit you can bear. It's where word and deed come together and brings glory to God in a unique way. To bring others into the name of Christ. Aspire to grow here. And I tell you, if you want to spot a committed mature Christian, the serious sold-out believer, look for the evangelist. This is the one who believes so much. They're just out there telling other people the truth left and right. They just can't help it. May you aspire to grow in that area. And is that you? Or have you have you fallen short here? Have you let countless opportunities pass by? Have you not redeemed the time? Have you not conducted yourself with wisdom toward outsiders? Have you not been compelling in your speech with them? I think it's safe to say for all of us, myself included, there's been times we've let that opportunity slip by. We we look back in hindsight like, yeah, I I should have said something. Who hasn't had that experience where we feel like that one, that door opened and closed, and I I just missed it? But let me speak graciously to you. First, maybe we can give thanks that our salvation is not by works. You know, we are sinners who fall short. It's why Jesus came. It's why we need Jesus. Even with our ongoing shortcomings, his grace abounds. But at the same time, let yourself receive some conviction this morning. Just think about how you live in and among outsiders. What holds you back from speaking? Is it the fear of man? Is that the lack of knowledge? Whatever it is, seek to grow. You have a witness before the world. That's not the question. It's just what kind of a witness. But how can you improve to let the light shine in word and in deed? How can you better show the, the power of new life in Christ before your unbelieving parents? Or how can you speak more clear the gospel truth to the, that unbelieving coworker? Think about these things. Don't put them off resolve to change, resolve to let fewer opportunities go by. Just just grow deeper in your faith. You will mature, and the fruit of evangelism will be found on that tree. But don't put these things off. The time is short. The days are evil. Open doors, they come, and they're closing fast these days. But let us, for the name of Christ and for the good of, outside, of the outsider, let us seek to bear fruit in word and in deed and show them the way. And the only way, and that's in Christ. Let's do that together. Pray with me. Our Lord God in heaven, we we pray for resolve this morning, for conviction to to show the world the way. We ourselves confess, we once were simply lost as well. We were living in the darkness, blind, dead, cut off, and without hope in the world. We thank you, though, for the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That's why we are here, that Salvation can be found. It doesn't come by our works. We see that the hopeless despair of of all these world religions, so many people striving so hard to earn righteousness, yet we ourselves know in our heart of hearts, and your scripture attests that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. And the only thing coming for us is a just judgment. But in your grace, you sent your son, Christ, to die on the cross, to truly rise from the dead, to pay our entire penalty, we might be forgiven and then reconciled, redeemed, and this all comes for free. It's a grace gift. We, we access it just by faith, by trusting, no longer in our effort, but by his effort, not in our works, but, on, but in his work on the cross. That's the work that saves. We've entered into the, this joy, the newness of life. We've tasted and seen that you are good and Christ is true. We have found the way, the truth, and the life in Christ. We thank you for that. And Lord, convict us, though, to not, uh, to not stop there, but to tell others, just to let the light of Christ shine to those around us, and convict us to be a people who is not silent, who are not merely hearers, but doers, and, and convict us to bear that fruit of evangelism. That, that's, that is most certainly the only hope for our world and our culture. Uh, we, we certainly can expect nothing to change if we don't open our mouths and sit idly by. So help us. We trust your will in it, but may we simply be found faithful in word, and in deed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.